God effectually calls, he also freely justifies. He does this not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and accounting and accepting them as righteous. He does this for Christ's sake alone and not for anything produced in them or done by them. He does not impute faith itself, the act of believing, or any other gospel obedience to them as their righteousness. Instead, he imputes Christ's act of obedience to the whole law and passive obedience in his death as their whole and only righteousness by faith. This faith is not self-generated. It is the gift of God. And so we uh, have discussed everything up to and including footnote 4. Uh, and again, the main takeaway here is the, what ended up being the dividing line between the Protestants and the Roman Catholics in the time of the Reformation was this article on justification. Martin Luther said that this is the whole article on which the church stands or falls. So if you get this right, whatever else may be unhealthy or wrong in your church, there is actually a true church there. If you get this wrong, no matter how great everything else is, you don't have a church. You have a social club of some sort, but you do not have a church if you get this wrong. Um, and I would happen to agree uh, with, with that sentiment. Um, this, is, this is the hinge on, on which our whole understanding of the gospel turns. Okay? And so again, the difference is between infused righteousness and imputed righteousness. This is an important distinction to get. Infused righteousness says that as I cooperate with God... And as I build up righteousness in myself, as I cooperate with him, I become more and more righteous. And very few of us, I'm talking the Roman Catholic understanding, very few of us will be so righteous that we get to go to heaven when we die. The saints will, because they performed surplus righteous acts, but 99.9% .9 of all Christians will not be able to go to heaven when they die. They will have to go through a season in purgatory uh, to have their remaining sin purged off and to come into full righteousness, and when their full righteousness is accomplished, then they get sprung from purgatory uh, into heaven. And as Protestants, we say that's just not a biblical concept. Purgatory is a man-made idea. Uh, when we receive Christ by faith, we receive all of Christ by faith. That means at the second of your conversion, at the very moment of your conversion, you are entirely righteous. You are perfectly holy from a legal standpoint. Not in terms of your behavior. Your behavior needs to catch up, and that's what sanctification is, is a lifetime process of your actions catching up with God's verdict on you. But at the moment of conversion, you are sinlessly holy. You are absolutely perfect. Not because of your conduct, but because you are covered in Christ's perfect righteousness. Okay? And that seems, if you look at your own life, that seems like... A bit of a tall claim, doesn't it? The moment of your conversion, you are absolutely perfect in God's eyes. Does that seem like a tall claim? Yeah? Can we see how thoroughly biblical it is, though? He counts you righteous on account of Jesus Christ. Okay? And, and this exchange is two ways. All your sin on Christ and all his righteousness on you. That's imputation. And that's absolutely different uh, than the Roman Catholic view of in, uh, infusion, where we, we cooperate, we build this up. And Tim, 
asked a question uh, last week about are there Protestants who have reverted back to this, and yes, there absolutely are. Um, any kind of uh, view of human free will that says that we can produce faith on our own or with our decision rather than that it being a gift from God is some small form of returning back to the Roman Catholic view that says, I did something decisive for my salvation. Okay? So when we say it's all of grace, what we mean is it's all of grace. And by all, I mean all. It's 100% grace, including the, the saving faith that opens your hands to receive Christ's righteousness. It's all of grace. Even the faith that you chose to exercise, you chose to exercise because just before that, the Holy Spirit gave you a new heart. All of grace, all the way down. Pure gift, pure mercy, nothing in my hands I bring. Only to thy cross I cling. That's what we've discovered so far. And then we're going to uh, finish this off here. But first of all, any, any follow-up discussion on what we've discussed in this article up until this point? Have we gone over it enough that it's all crystal clear? Lisa. Okay, so Lisa's asking, I used the example of Lazarus, and I believe the miracle of Lazarus is meant to teach us about the miracle of the rebirth. So what we discussed was God makes Lazarus alive, and then in response to that, he comes out of the tomb at the command of Jesus. So Lisa's asking, is there such a thing as God making someone alive, and then they don't respond? Am I understanding correctly? Okay, uh, okay, this is good. Go to Matthew 23. I'm sure it's Matthew 23. If I'm wrong, then you'll have to forgive me. This text is sometimes used uh, to, to show the opposite of what I've just said or to show that God is trying his best to save people, and they, their resistance can somehow overpower God's grace. Okay, this text is used this way. Let's look closely at what this text says. Right at the very end of Matthew 23, and I'll put this in context of what we've been going through in our sermon series. Has anyone noticed that every week there's more tension between Jesus and the Pharisees? And it's moving very quickly to a catastrophic ending. One in Jesus' death and secondly, an event that I don't think we give nearly enough attention to, and that is the catastrophic destruction of Jerusalem in the year AD 70. A million Jews died in that catastrophe. Uh, Titus sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple to repeat the abomination of desolation that happened in Daniel with Antiochus Epiphanes uh, desecrating the temple that way. Uh, the Jewish Christians knew full well what Jesus was saying in Matthew 23 and 24. And so when the Roman army surrounded Jerusalem, they said, Jesus was just talking about this not so long ago. Let's get out of here. Let's go to the hills in Pella and get out of here. Because this city is about to get catastrophically destroyed. And it was. And I know a lot of people just go straight to the 
final judgment in these passages, but something catastrophic happens within a generation of Jesus' hearers, and that is that the whole Old Covenant system is permanently destroyed. Once there's no temple, there's no sacrifices. The Pharisees are judged. Their whole religious system is catastrophically destroyed in the year AD 70, and that's why Jewish people today cannot worship at all like the Jews uh, in this time. So as this is moving to catastrophe, and a, a judgment clearly directed at the unbelief of Jerusalem. Okay, let's keep in mind what's in this text. O Jerusalem, we're starting in verse 37. Matthew 23, 27, 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing... See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. How this text is sometimes used is to pull it right out of the context, first of all. Just forget that this has anything to do with Jerusalem and just apply it to me and you today. And to say, see, this shows Jesus wanted to save Jerusalem and he was unable to because of their hardness. But look here. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city. Okay, now in covenantal thinking, who represents a city or a nation? Its leaders do. Okay? So let's read this the way this would have been heard. O Pharisees, Pharisees, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children? Okay, the Pharisees are keeping the children away. Jesus is gathering the children, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are keeping them away. It's not that Jesus is powerless to save the children, okay? But their leaders are keeping them away from the gospel. They're running interference on Jesus' plans. So this isn't saying that the people Jesus is trying to save are successful in pushing him away. This is saying their religious leaders are running interference. Because the little children of Jerusalem are saved. Those whom Christ has called to himself are saved. The Pharisees manifestly are not saved. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you, now we're talking to Jerusalem, we're talking to the Pharisees, you were not willing. You religious leaders were not willing for me to do my work in saving the least among you. Okay? This isn't that the same group that Jesus is trying to save are successfully resisting him. Their representatives are keeping the people away from Jesus. So I don't think this is a text that can uh, be used to disprove God's sovereignty and salvation or to say man can overpower God's grace. I don't believe so. There is a general sense in which God gives general grace to creation, um, like in Acts, where Stephen, I forget exactly where it is in Acts, uh, but he complains that you people always resist the Holy Spirit, okay? So what do we do with that? Well, and I'd say the default setting on the human heart is we all resist God's Holy Spirit in our native capacity. We all do that. We're all God-haters by nature. So we all resist the Holy Spirit. The question is, when God says, now it's time to be reborn, can God, through his Holy Spirit, overcome that resistance? 
And we would say yes. Yes, yes, they resist the Holy Spirit. Yes, we all do in our default setting. Is the power of the gospel enough to overcome that resistance? And the Protestant answer is absolutely yes. Whoever he calls will come. Romans 8 lays that out. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Jesus says in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and I shall lose none of them, and they shall all be raised up on the last day. The group that Jesus starts with, he ends with. If God gives a people to Jesus, he saves them, he sanctifies them, and they will be in heaven. No dropouts and no late entries. The, the, the mass of humanity that the Father gives to the Son absolutely, uh, without fail, are going to be saved, sometimes in the most unlikely circumstances. But Jesus is powerful to save, and he absolutely does save those whom the Father has given him. Further discussion on that. Can we all see God's grace is big enough to overcome our resistance? Okay? Your resistance is no match for the Holy Spirit. Okay? Uh, I think a dead body resists walking out of a tomb pretty effectively most of the time. But then a miracle happens and says, okay, now it's time. Now, Lazarus, now you're going to walk out of here. I will get you to cooperate. <laughs> okay? That is how big uh, the power of God is in raising dead sinners to life. I can overcome your resistance. <laughs> well, that's just it. People say, oh, I've actually heard the worst I've heard about talking about God's sovereignty and salvation is it's divine rape. God saves people against their will. And I'm thinking, Kate, who in their right mind, if you're being raised from spiritual death and you are a hellbound sinner, trapped by your own sin, absolutely on the path to the lake of fire, and then God gives you the gift of salvation, who would kick and scream at that? Right? Well, a person that thinks they're God and says, I want to stay in control of this, <laughs> right? But God does not drag people kicking and screaming into, the hev into heaven. He makes them willing. He makes them willing. So we come, and there may be resistance at first in the early stages of conversion, but the Spirit will overcome. People, people don't go to heaven against their wishes. Okay? If you're reborn, that means at some point in this process, you want to go to heaven. You want to put sin to death in your life. You want to grow in holiness. You want to be there. And that would be a good analogy, yeah. The only way you would talk that way, I would agree with Howard, is if you are incredibly prideful and you want to stay in charge of your salvation. Then you might talk about supernatural conversion as an act of divine rape, but it's the most bizarre way to talk. You're given, you know, if somebody gave you an inheritance of $10 million that you didn't ask for, say, oh, I'm so offended. Come on. Come on. Let's keep going. This faith is not self-generated. It is the gift of God. And who wants to go to John 1, verse 12? Who wants to take that? 
John 1, verse 12. Howard's got that. And then who wants to take Romans 5, 17? Keenan. Oh, <laughs> I spy with my little eye. Yeah. All right, Howard, go ahead. John 1, verse 12. And actually, keep going. Verse 13. Okay. I think we looked at this not that long ago. How clear does the Bible have to be in saying that rebirth is not a decision you make? Like, how emphatic does the text actually have to say this did not happen by the will of man? And a bunch of Christians are saying, well, but free will, but free... Your will is freed when this happens. Okay? Can the Bible be any more explicit? This did not happen because of a choice you made. You made a choice because God did this for you. You have a new heart that started beating. Now you want it to do these things. The Bible doesn't deny that we have a will. It just says it's not free to choose anything. It's not free to choose contrary to its desires. We need new desires if we're going to make new choices. And that's what the rebirth is. But there's another important thing in this verse. Who's heard of the concept of the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man? Right? Woodrow Wilson, kind of 1920s liberalism stuff. Right? If you were a, a liberal Christian in the 1920s, you heard lots about the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. After all, we're all... Charlie Pride, as much as I love him, even has a terrible song about that. Uh, you know, we're all God's children, his next of kin, no matter where you're going or where you've been. Uh, we're part of the family of God. I won't sing it because I'm not, I don't have a delicious baritone voice like Charlie Pride. But that kind of thinking, can you see how prevalent that is? Who can hear that? We're all God's children. Who's heard something along those lines? Okay. What does John say? Who are the children of God? Howard just read it in verse 12. Who are the children of God? Those who receive Christ. We're not all God's children. Okay? Everyone is a creation of God. Unbelievers are created by God too. But to be intimately adopted into God's family, to be able to call God Father instead of judge is a privilege for those who have received Christ. And if you have not received Christ, God is not your Father. He is your judge. And his anger remains on you. If you receive Christ by faith, you are adopted into God's family. That anger is completely dissipated. And now you may call him father. And you receive the full inheritance that a legitimate son receives. Because adoption actually, truly puts you in a family. Okay? But this is a privilege for those who believe in Christ. Okay? So when this debate happens, is Allah just another name for God? Do we all serve the God? You know, the Abrahamic faiths, do we all serve the same God? No. I'll make that very simple. No. No, the Jewish God is not God. And no, Allah is not God. Okay? Different gods. We have a Trinitarian God revealed in Scripture, which the other Abrahamic faiths absolutely reject. It's not the same God with a different name. Different God. Okay? 
For who would that be a, a difficult or a new concept that not every person alive is the child of God? Is that a new concept? Different concept? Has anyone thought about that before? Considered that? Heard of that? No, no, it would, yeah, God loves everyone the same, yep. Which then you wonder, case. Okay, so he was trying equally hard with Pharaoh and with Moses? Yeah, and he gave the exact same grace to Esau as he gave to Jacob, right? Yeah. Yeah, he loves it, yeah, it's, it's all the same, it's indiscriminate. And every, every story in the Old Testament would tell you that's clearly not the case. And then when the New Testament explains what was going on in those stories, it's also clearly not the case. God has a special, God has a general love for all his creation, a general creator love, a love of beneficence, but he has a love of satisfaction or a, a family love that is for those who are in Christ and not uh, for those who are not in Christ. So there is a distinction to be made. That doesn't deny God's general love for creation, but there is a special saving love that is on those who receive Christ by faith and, and not on everyone generally. Keith? Okay, so Keith's asking, again, if I'm understanding correctly, they receive many gifts from God, and so we call that common grace, or we call that God's love of beneficence, because it rains on the just and on the unjust. An unbelieving father loves his newborn little girl just like a Christian dad does, right? In a sense, yes. Um, now, there's not everyone storing up wrath equally either right? Um, in Jesus' example about the servants, the one who knows the Father's will and doesn't do it receives a heavier beating than the ignorant one. So I don't think everyone's storing up wrath equally. If, if someone is a chronic complainer and he mistreats his wife and he uh, disregards his children, he is storing up more wrath than the unbelieving father who actually does find a way to show some kind of love or patience or kindness. So there too, that's not an egalitarian storing up of wrath. Okay? Those who are more hardened to God's kindness store up more wrath faster than, than some do. So that's not an egalitarian process either. But you're right. If To receive kindness from God and refuse to, to see the giver behind the gift, that is something that God will not overlook in the final end. But, but that doesn't mean everyone's storing up wrath at the same rate if I'm understanding what you're saying properly. Yeah. 
But, I mean, to make, it's an extreme example, but it illustrates the case. Adolf Hitler, who is sinning against everything he knows, growing up in a Lutheran country where there's Lutheran ministers protesting against him and opposing him and going against everything he knows is right. He's intentionally making war against God, against goodness, against anything good in creation. He is storing up wrath much, much faster than some bushman in Venezuela who's never heard of the gospel and is guilty for his own sins, clearly. God won't count him innocent because he's ignorant. But to say they're storing up wrath equally, absolutely not. The more light you're sinning against, and Adolf Hitler growing up in Christianized Lutheran Germany is sinning against a great light. The level of punishment for people like that in hell is much more severe, I think the Bible teaches, than for someone who received very little light and is guilty of sinning against the little light that they had. But I don't, th- I don't think, uh, I would agree with Winston Churchill who said socialism is a terrible idea everywhere you think about it because in heaven we won't want it and in hell they already have it. <laughs> Uh, it, it's, it's, and there's a bit of a turn there, but it, there, it's not egalitarian. There are degrees of reward for believers in heaven, and there are degrees of punishment in hell for unbelievers based on what we actually did or did not do. I do believe. More on that. Then let's keep going. Romans 5.17, Keenan, you had that. Okay, so the abundance of grace, the free gift of righteousness, reigning in life, those are all wonderful blessings. And through how many men did they come, Keenan? One. One man. One man's righteousness is enough to dress everybody in this room with complete holiness. And not just everyone in this room, but every Christian who has ever lived or will ever live anywhere in the world. The billions of people that are in heaven are all dressed with the righteousness that one man earned for them. One man did that for a vast number that no one can number. Okay, So this is truly all of grace, all the way down, okay? Your sin onto Christ, it's fully atoned for. God remembers it no more. It's as far as the east is from the west. It's gone. You don't need to feel ashamed of what you did. You don't need to feel guilty for what you did. It's gone. It's gone, gone. God will not hold it against you. It's done. Leave it behind. Walk forward in obedience. It's gone. And not only that, all the righteousness gets put on you. And that concept to me, it still amazes me to think when I think of the sin in my life and the sin in my head that none of you people see and I face God's courtroom and he says, yep, perfectly righteous. This guy is perfectly holy. Case dismissed. Get in here. That is remarkable. Perfectly holy because of the righteousness of one man, Jesus Christ. So not only is the shame and the guilt gone, but perfect righteousness is given as a gift. That is tremendous. More discussion on that. Maybe we've gone through this thoroughly enough now that we can move on.
Then if there's no other discussion, then let's start on section two. Section two. Faith that receives and rests on Christ and his righteousness is the only instrument of justification. Yet it does not occur by itself in the person justified, but it is always accompanied by every other saving grace. It is not, grace. It is not a dead faith, but works through love. Okay, and this is an important piece to put together in the puzzle here too. Who wants to take Romans 3.28? Ron, okay? So Ron is going to read, and again, we'll just read the sentence before footnote 6 here. Faith that receives and rests on Christ and His righteousness is the only instrument of justification. And then Ron will read Romans 3.28. Okay. Justified by faith apart from works of the law. Okay? Faith in Jesus is it. Apart from the law, you're justified by faith. And so, the people objecting to Paul say, oh, so I may go on sinning that grace may abound. Sweet. Right? We're saved by faith, so my actions don't matter, so I get to keep living however I want. Right? Because this is all by grace. So I get to do whatever I want. Right? Right, everyone? No? Yannicka says no. Can we do whatever we want? No. Why not? Why not? Yep. Because God saves us for a reason. For His glory. That's right. Yep. Absolutely. And I think this is the piece that we miss. Salvation is applied to individuals. But ultimately, salvation is not for Matt and for Lisa and for Rob and for Lydia. It is for us, but ultimately, it's for God's glory. Okay? I think it was Whitfield who said that Christ is both God and man so that God and man could be happily living in eternity once again forever. Okay? The incarnation that we're celebrating at Christmas time, the fact that Christ became a man is such a profound thing that God and man can actually be married back together, even after the fall, okay? And so when God saves people, it's not just to get them out of hell. Salvation is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It is part of God's saving purposes for the cosmos. And He wants an audience that's ready to glorify Him. So the point of salvation is to give God glory, and that's the point of your life after conversion, it's not just to say, I'm saved by grace, I will do whatever I want, thank you very much. If that's your attitude, you have to question whether you're saved. Because <laughs> saved people don't think, well, I can do whatever I want, I'm Christian, I'm saved by grace. If that's your attitude, go back and start over again. You might not be saved at all. Okay? Check your work. <laughs> okay? Saved people don't think they have a license to sin. Because... Saving faith does not occur by itself in the person justified, but it is always accompanied by every other saving grace. It is not a dead faith, but works through love. And why don't we go to, uh, who wants to take Galatians 5 and six, uh, five verse 6? Who wants to grab that? Don? Okay, and who wants to take James 2, 17 through 26? 
Caitlin. Okay, Galatians 5, verse 6. Okay, faith working through love. So does faith just sit idle? Right? I've got this fully restored 57 Chevy and now it's too nice to drive. So I'm just going to leave it in the garage. Is that saving faith? No. Saving faith does something. Sweet, I got a 57 Chevy, I better drive it. Okay, I better do something with it. And then James 2, uh, 17 through 26, Caitlin. Thank you. Okay, so I'll say the obvious part first. Is James contradicting Paul? We just read a minute ago that we're saved by faith apart from the works of the law, and now James says that he attaches works to justification. Is there a contradiction? No. They're using the word justified differently. Paul is talking about justification in terms of salvation. James is talking about justification in terms of defending something. Okay? Like if you have to justify your actions, you're making an account for your actions. So essentially, James is answering the question, how is your justification justified? How do you prove you're justified? Okay? How would you make a case to prove to me that you actually have saving faith? And James says, well, because that saving faith works. It doesn't just sit idle. It's working. So you can't have a dead faith. If you have a dead faith, you're, you don't have faith. Faith is living. Faith obeys. Faith does things. Faith puts sin to death. Faith loves its neighbor. Okay? Faith makes worship a priority. Uh, faith is pursuing holiness. Faith does stuff. Okay? And again, this is part of the, the cosmic concept of salvation is that God's not just interested in fishing people out of the pit of hell, as true as that is. He's interested in reconciling everything. Which means, if the glory of the Lord, if, if, if that's going to cover the earth as the waters cover the deep, we better start rehearsing for when that wedding feast happens. Okay? Your life after you're saved is a wedding rehearsal for after everything is put back to rights. That's what sanctification is about, is preparing for that eternity when Christ returns, okay? So we, we have to see what the design, why did God save anyone at all? We have to think about this covenantally because otherwise, if we don't think about what God's doing, then doctrines like election or justification start to seem very cold and very impersonal, okay? And that's why, frankly, 
Sometimes the way people talk about Reformed theology or about Calvinism, if they detach it from any kind of covenantal or cosmic thinking, it does not just sound very impersonal and cold. It actually is. It actually is. If you, if you divorce this from covenant theology and it's just about election and just about God's sovereign actions with no view to what his design is, it is cold and impersonal. And frankly, I don't blame people for saying I'm not interested in that. If we see it covenantally, what God is doing to build a new family, to recreate humanity, to restore glory in his uh, creation, I think these doctrines make a lot more sense because there's, there's a purpose behind it. There's an end in view, which is everything being reconciled, that Christ may be all in all. Christ gets this mass of humanity from the Father as a gift and the Father says, I want you to turn a profit on that gift. And Jesus takes that mass of humanity and gives it back to the Father, so vastly improved. Okay? Christ gets the keys to the kingdom. He perfects it. And he makes it perfect. And then he says, here, Dad, I'm done. And he hands the keys back to the Father, that Christ may be all in all. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 teaches. That's covenantal. That's not just cold logic chopping. There's a design behind election. Election's not cold and impersonal. It's beautiful. It's covenantal. And it has restoration in view in the final end. So we have to keep this grounded in the bigger picture. Not to deny individual salvation. But this is much, much bigger than individual salvation. Individual salvation serves the bigger storyline. And I'll stop there for now. Does that... Can we see how we can't divorce this from the big story? We have to keep looking at the big story or else this gets cold? Or are you guys not seeing how cold this can get? It's awfully quiet, so either that means it got drilled home or I've explained it very poorly. <laughs> Uh, okay, well, some people, who's ever heard of Calvinists being referred to as the frozen chosen? Okay. If you divorce these doctrines from covenant theology, it is the frozen chosen. It's cold, it's impersonal, and frankly, it often becomes unholy. It, it very often becomes unholy in terms of actual conduct because people don't understand why I'm saved. Right? If you're just saved... Because you can speak Plautich like me, and the Plautich people are very, very holy people. Or if you're just saved because you're Dutch, or you're just saved because you're a Scots Presbyterian, okay? or you're just saved because you're an English Anglican, that's what happens. And the fruit from that thinking is terrible. It's rotten fruit because it fails to see anything past your nose. It fails to see that God is rebuilding a new humanity through his church in the world. And if it's just election or just justification removed from the big story of the Bible, it's only half a step of logic away to say, I can live however I want. I got my get-out-of-jail-free card. And I literally speak low German, so... Right? 
I'm very holy for those. I'm very spiritual, is what I said in low German. But we do that. And I, I hope today the sermon's going to touch on some of our traditions that come with our uh, ethnicity. But it's in all of us. And don't think anyone in this room, we all have an ethnicity, we all have a tradition. Are you willing to examine it? I'll leave that as pre-work before the message. But please don't ever separate election from covenant theology or else you do get up into frozen chosen kind of stuff and stinking fruit instead of holy fruit. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your incredible kindness. I want to thank you at this time of year that we remember uh, that you added a human nature onto yourself. You came as the first example of a remarried humanity, a humanity which is intimately and covenantally and eternally bound to the Father. And you are the first of that new creation. Lord, and you are sweeping us into that big story as you save us one by one, as you breathe life into our hearts, as you make us be born again, as you open our hands so we receive saving faith, and then as you work in us uh, and empower us to put sin to death and to grow in righteousness. Lord, and I want to leave with you this incredible burden for each one here and each one that we love that's not here that they would see that salvation is so much more than getting out of hell free. Lord, but this is the first taste of a rebuilt humanity, of a rebuilt world, of a rebuilt cosmos. And so our righteousness really does matter. We are living in front of your face right now. And our lives and our conduct and the language that comes out of our mouth and our actions and our intentions are telling a story about what we really believe about you. Lord, and I beg, I plead that you would send your spirit so that everyone in this room would be telling the truth with their words and with their lives and not just saying the right things and being a dead man inside. Lord, give us your vitality, give us your spirit, and I pray that you would give us a faith that really works, that really cares to make you known, that really wants to manifest itself in living every day to your glory and seeing how we can glorify you in every situation. Lord, you have been so faithful, and we trust you will continue to be faithful. Grow us up into the people you would have us to be. Lord, prepare us for your eternal kingdom, for our eternal home. And I pray that this discussion will have been helpful. Whatever is uh, confusing or has been misspoken, Lord, I ask for forgiveness, and I pray that you would let that drop to the ground. And yet those things which are true and honorable and beautiful. Lord, drive that nail deep into our hearts. Give us the strength we need to push it into the corners. Thank you for your kindness. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus, and amen.